good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll preview the 29th edition of the Chicago Underground Film Festival, which is about to kick off. The Dueling Critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel, will join me to talk about Northlight Theater's nostalgic production, Dear Jack, Dear Louise. Later, I'll bring you with me inside an accordion festival that took place in the western suburbs this week. And I'll review the new French film, My Donkey, My Lover, and I. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. We can be happy underground. Some of the things that were considered underground in the mid-90s are now very much mainstream. But the Chicago Underground Film Festival, which was founded in 1993, remains true to its mission all these years later. The fest is still dedicated to what I might describe as Cinema Obscura, the avant-garde, experimental, and undefinable. The Chicago Underground Film Festival kicks off its 29th edition on Wednesday, July 27th, and culminates on Sunday the 31st. Over 100 underground films, including several world premieres, will be presented at this year's fest. I recently caught up with festival artistic director Brian Wendorf to talk about his approach to programming and what's new at this year's fest. Wendorf has seen a lot over the past 29 years. He helped start the Chicago Underground Film Festival in the early 90s. You were part of that original team that, that started the first one? That's right, yeah. I was part of the original group of people that put on the first festival back, I think we started planning in 1993, and the first festival was in 94, I think, something like that, 29 years ago. The actual idea for the festival originated with a friend of mine, Jay Blisnick who's no longer directly involved with the festival, although he is on our board of directors now. Jay and I were working together at a video store in Evanston. He had gone off to a horror film convention. I believe it was a famous Monsters of Filmland convention, the thing, a magazine that Forrest J. Ackerman did. Okay. Um, I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. But uh, he, he had a conversation with somebody while he was at this horror film convention, and he was watching these young filmmakers who were at the convention giving these famous directors that were there VHS tapes of their movies. That experience sparked an idea to create an event that could cater to emerging filmmakers. The festival's obviously changed quite a bit from that original idea. I mean, I'm more interested in experimental and avant-garde film and documentaries and kind of unusual films of whatever genre, you know, underground is kind of a vague term. We can kind of apply it however we like. But, you know, that's kind of what we seek out, like the, the most unusual films that we can find and unusual topics, unusual styles, things of that nature. But yeah, that's how the initial idea for the festival came about. And it was really done in a very, like that old movie cliche, of like, hey kids, let's put on a show, you know? <laughs> we, we just sort of, figured it out as we went along. Obviously, nearly 30 years later, I've done this many, many times, so I have a pretty clear idea what's involved now, but at the time, we were just sort of figuring it all out. We had no money. We had to figure out how to make this thing happen with almost no budget at all, uh, and we managed to do it, and it was, the first one was successful enough to keep it going, and it's obviously grown and, and evolved over over the decades. Yeah, I was curious about that. Here we are 29 years later, so you, uh, there must have been some success early on, even just getting started. Yeah. Our third year, a big boost that the festival got, and I, I think that third year, for me, kind of sealed it as something that really had validity and wanted it to be something that I wanted to keep going with. But we had reached out to Roger Ebert and asked him if he would interested in covering this new festival that we had started and he wrote back and said sure like send me some 
some of the films and I'll take a look and see what I can do. So we, in our youthful naivete, uh, contacted every filmmaker who had been accepted in, in the festival that year and said, here's Roger Ebert's address. He <laughs> wants to see your movie. He got inundated with tape. <laughs> but he wrote a, a really large two-page article for the Sun-Times that year highlighting the festival and covering as many of those films as he could. He was very, very generous with his time. And that definitely helped put the festival on another level of awareness and, you know, attendance increased. And from that, you know, interest from sponsors and things, all, it all kind of, that was like a year where it was like a game changer. A lot of things really fell into place. And it really started to feel more like a film festival by that third year and less like a convention in the way Jay originally was inspired by. So we were kind of kept going from there. And after, you know, in these early years with no money, and it was also the early 90s, so everything was on either film prints, like mostly 16. We didn't do 35 millimeter film at all in the early years. And then really primitive analog videotape. But after Ebert wrote his article, then we started to expand. We moved into a legitimate movie theaters, started to show 35 millimeter. We were one of the fir- first festivals in the United States to show digital video, which is now the norm in movie theaters. Now it's the, the challenge is when we do want to show film, you know, having to bring extra equipment in to actually show a film print. We were kind of on the, the forefront of a lot of those things. And, you know, the... Commissions have changed a lot. In the early years, it was a lot of student work and films that were made at art schools and things around the country, mostly in the United States. We get submissions from all over the world now. I, I checked, and there, there, I don't think there's a continent that we didn't receive a submission from this year. Oh, wow. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. The history probably gets murky, but uh, from your understanding, is the the Chicago Underground Film Festival among among the first to kind of take that mantle of like an underground film festival? Yeah. So the same year that we started, a festival called the New York Underground Film Festival also started that same year. We had no idea that they were going to start until we reached out to a film magazine called Film Threat that was a big influence on, on both of these festivals and reached out to them about becoming one of our first sponsors. And they said, oh, these guys in New York are doing a New York Underground Film Festival, too. And we thought that was great. And obviously, New York has a long um, established history with underground film. Anthology Film Archive, founded by Jonas Mikas, who were, were showing a documentary about Jonas this year. Uh, he passed away in 2019. But he started Anthology Film Archive in New York, which has been kind of the center place for experimental and underground film in the United States. But they ended the festival in 2008, I think it was 15 years. So we've now lasted almost twice as long as they did. Oh, wow. Um, so that's why we use the mantle of calling ourselves the, the longest running underground film festival. You know, there are other experimental film festivals and independent film festivals, but we were the first to really embrace the underground idea and that name and things. You touched on it already, the, the term underground, that can mean different things to different people. It's it's vague and it, it works, you know, that way you can kind of yeah. include. But I'm just curious, the spectrum can be wide. So on like one end, like something that is like borderline mainstream indie. And then on the other end, something that maybe like someone just shot on their, their VHS camera and has like sure. no product. Do you have like guiding principles that help determine well, like what know, fits in that? The festival actually shows work that runs that gamut from kind of low-budget indie films to really gritty, down, you know, made-for-no-money, like shot on, we've had films shot on cell phones, shot on outmoded video formats, Super 8, 16mm, everything in between. So the production values range drastically from one film to another. You know, we're open to all these things. It's more in the spirit and the, I mean, Underground does have a connotation of counterculture around it, so that's a, uh, a part of it. You know, in even some of the bigger films this year, like we're showing um, the documentary Larry Flint for Larry Flint for President. Yeah, it's a documentary about 
Larry Flint, the publisher of Hustler magazine, the pornographer, running for president of the United States against Ronald Reagan in 1984. And about that political, you know, he launched a very serious political campaign. I mean, it was a crazy political campaign, but he he was serious about it. It's also a bit of satire. Um, And that film premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival last year. And it's having its Midwest premiere in Chicago at our festival. Um, So that's a pretty big indie-type documentary. Um, Still pretty low budget. But that... The themes of that are very much tied to like an underground cultural kind of idea. The uh, you know the the underground term you know for underground film kind of goes back to the late fifties, early sixties with people like Kenneth Anger, Sam Brackage, the Kachar brothers, a lot of these filmmakers, mostly in New York, but in Chicago we had people like Tom Palazzolo making films. Tom was our first guest of honor, um, and he was kind of loosely affiliated with uh, the Harry Who art movement in Chicago. Okay. So, you know, there was a lot of underground film in San Francisco as well. Now it's kind of, it's more diverse and can happen everywhere. It's also harder to define what it is. You know, the early underground film in the 60s, you know, they, they were pushing boundaries with in terms of sometimes the depiction of sex on screen. So somebody like Jack Smith, you know, he would get his film screenings raided by the police and Jonas Mikas would have had to um, go to court to defend them. And he won. And those films are now in major museums and he's a revered experimental filmmaker. After the 60s, I think there was a movement to kind of some of the filmmakers that were part of that kind of started to distance themselves from the term underground and got more embraced in, in academics. You know, they started teaching at universities and things. So they started working more formally. There was um, structural film and more formal experimental filmmaking. But at the same time, um, you had people inspired by the 60s underground, like John Waters, his early films, again, we made super low budget. He went to New York and saw all these underground films there and went back to Baltimore and started making his version of them with his friends. And that's how we got things like Pink Flamingos. He's also somebody who has been a guest at the festival and very closely a good friend of ours. So it changes a lot, you know, what, what underground is. There was a kind of a punk rock underground film movement in the 80s called the Cinema of Transgression that was based in New York, but at the same time, people in San Francisco and in Chicago were making films that were kind of akin to those, on, mostly on Super 8. That was a huge influence on us in the early days. Again, quick, you know, keeping that spirit of countercultural filmmaking and do-it-yourself filmmaking alive through different formats. I mean, things have changed so much now because digital video allows very inexpensive filmmaking to look as good as things coming out of Hollywood now. So oh, yeah. that's, uh, that's changed it a lot. I mean, it used to be underground film had a very gritty, you could see the low budget in it. Right. That's not the case anymore. Right. From my perspective, and I'll age myself, me and my friends got together in high school. We would make movies with one of our parents, home video recorders, but we had like no, sure. we had no editing. So we would just like re-record right. our, our scenes. And, but now young people or anybody, um, yeah, with access to a phone can create like something pretty professional looking. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot, um, a wide range of types of films that people would see at a festival like ours, you know, feature length narrative features. I were opening and closing with films by Chicago filmmakers this year, uh, that are both having their world premieres documentaries, a lot of experimental shorts, documentary shorts, narrative shorts. Sometimes we experiment with things that kind of push the boundaries of what even constitutes a film or or is related to film, but in some other like expanded capacity. Like um, we're doing this program called Blockchain Fairy Tales this year with a guy named Lance Wheeler, who's a festival alumni. He's had a, a feature at the festival before, uh, but he now teaches at Columbia University, and they have a um, digital storytelling laboratory there. And this blockchain fairy tales grew out of that, and it's a interactive 
program with video, but using computer technology and things where the audience actually steers the narrative of the story. It's not he make, he's making the film, it's the whole audience in the theater is making the experience in real time. They're putting it on the screen. I haven't actually seen it take place yet, so I'm, I'm as excited by that as anything in the festival because I won't even know what it'll, what it'll be like until I see it happen. Right. And I think that's taking place uh, Saturday, July 30th. Um, that's right. At 4.30. And then the festival itself, July 27th through the 31st. And most of the events are, are at the Logan Theater. Yeah, all the film screenings are at the Logan Theater. And then there's nightly parties and concerts and, and events, other nearby venues. Everything's kind of in, in that vicinity. But the, there's like nightly parties and things that are away from the theater, just you know, usually walking distance. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Brian Wendorf, the Artistic Director of the Chicago Underground Film Festival. You mentioned the uh, the opening and closing night films. The opening night film is uh, Provo, and the uh, closing night film, uh, Endless Content Forever, both from Chicago filmmakers. Is that something... Do you look for uh, world premieres to give kind of those coveted spots to, or is it just whatever you know you're feeling for that year? Um, yeah, changes of it. World premieres obviously can gather a lot of attention for an opening night, so that's always good. And Chicago films always get a lot of interest from people too. So having world premieres of Chicago films is kind of a no-brainer. Some years we've had a bigger, higher-profile film that's come from another festival that, you know, we think would draw interest from, you know, our audience. But both of these films I was really impressed with. Provo is kind of a a road movie. Um, Loosely, I mean, it's not exactly autobiographical, but the director, Emma Thatcher, has said that the character in the film is very much what her, what she thinks her life could have been like had she not had therapy or done things in a different way. But it's about a... um, a young woman going on a road trip back to Provo, Utah, to reconcile or reconnect with her estranged father, um, who's a Mormon, and she's coming from Chicago back to Provo, Utah, and with her her uh, partner. And yeah, I thought that was a really really interesting narrative feature with all Chicago, made by very young filmmakers here. Same, Endless Content Forever, kind of a satirical film. Um, it deals with a lot of the culture around YouTube videos and social media and how people can often get caught up in that world and live vicariously online consuming media instead of actually engaging in the world. So I thought that was a relevant topic for today. And a really, uh, it's a film that's kind of both thought-provoking and pretty funny so that's the closing film and that director is uh jacob gregor um who is uh who actually lives in logan square right near the theater with like a lot of the film festivals i'll, I'll cover uh, you know we'll see all these new films and then some of them will disappear if they don't get distribution and then uh you know eventually they'll they'll pop up somewhere with, with some of these uh, especially given how um you know it's truly these are truly independent many of them if you don't see them at the festival, you might not get an opportunity to, to see them for a while, I guess, depending on and how they're being released, right? Sure. I mean, with them, especially with the, sh- the things in the shorts programs, I think, you know, features often get some kind of streaming deal at this point and show up places like, you know, Amazon Prime, places like that sometimes, or or um, there's a streaming service co- called Mubi, M-U-B-I, um, a lot of the films that have played at the festival in the past eventually show there. But it, you never know, right? Sometimes this is the only place that you'll have a chance to see a lot of these films. And it's also really good to have the experience of seeing films in an audience with other people. And the, the interaction, you know, a festival isn't just the films. It's the audience and it's everything that's happening in the lobby, around the theater, and things. I mean, we've always tried to create an environment where the filmmakers and the audience are right there beside each other. Nobody's like a star, you know, you can just walk up and, and, and meet the people that are making these films and, and just 
discussed them with them. So that that experience, I think, you know, makes going to any kind of film festival a different experience than just watching a movie at home. Or, but yeah, you're right. Uh, a lot of things don't get distribution easily these days, especially things that are really uncommercial. I mean, even you know, people like David Lynch and John Waters find it harder to get financing to make movies these days. You know, because they're doing stuff that's out there, and they're established names. Right. As far as that experience of watching a, a film in a room with other people, that's something we, we all collectively lost, you know, these past two plus years and now the theaters are, are reopening. Yeah. But uh, I'm curious, so when you were planning this year's fest, was there a point where you started to feel confident that you would actually be able to welcome in-person audiences back? Yeah, yeah. Um, we only did one year virtual. We did the 2020 festival virtual, and then we did do um, two nights of drive-in theater screenings as well. Last year, we delayed the festival till November and did do in-person. The theaters had started to reopen, and we but we scaled way back. We only did three days, much smaller um, plate of films. But that was successful. We had we had people coming out for it. But this is kind of going, getting back to a bigger full-on festival like we've done in the past. It's still slightly scaled back from what we did pre-pandemic. We're moving, you know, taking steps to get back to where things hopefully will get back to some kind of normal. And obviously the impact of the pandemic didn't just affect audiences, it also affected everyone financially as well. So raising money for a festival like, like ours became more difficult. Um, so that was another reason for having to scale back some. But this is, you know, a lot of good things are, are happening right now. So I feel like this is the beginning of being back to where we used to be. Um, and I think next year for our 30th anniversary, you know, I don't know, don't know exactly what we'll be doing. We haven't even started thinking about next year yet, although I'm sure as soon as this year is over, we will. Right, right. Um, but I think that'll be bigger and better. Has it traditionally been a, a summer festival? Does it usually take place in July? Usually June, and hopefully next year we'll be back in June. We um, we have moved around on the calendar year from at different points, um, but generally speaking, it's been um, the very beginning of summer or the the end of spring. Yeah, July is a good good month for a festival i like it when the weather's nice but i also don't want it to be so nice that people want to stay outside getting into the air conditioning can be nice yeah yeah <laughs> for sure one thing i did want to ask you about i was reading about this year's fest and i, I saw something about that the um, the festival's transitioning to a decentralized and autonomous organization so i wasn't sure what that means you're just you're going off on your own well we are we, we also we also um Got our own independent 501c3 nonprofit status this year. Um, so we're a federally recognized nonprofit organization. Uh, we had been affiliated with other nonprofits in Chicago for quite a while. Um, so that's a big step, which allows us to get donations and apply for grants and things. But the DAO, uh, the Decentralized Autonomous Organization, is a um, form of membership organization where filmmakers and attendees and really anyone who feels invested in the festival in some way can join and have a voice in how the festival operates. DAOs are part of blockchain technology, so a lot of this takes place in in the uh, that sphere, which is something I'm still learning about, and I know people have very um, strong opinions about it one way or the other, and I'm I'm open to finding out more. But it's a new experiment that we're trying. Uh, we'll see how it goes, but it will allow people to have put forth um, ideas to the festival of what what they would like to see us do, and uh, it's basically a membership organization that people have a a, a voice and can vote on certain aspects of things interesting what's the response been to that so far have people been well it's just being launched at this year's festival so very um it's a little too soon to say what the response is um i think we'll have a better sense of it once this year's festival concludes we're we're going to be part of doing the blockchain fairy tales program is to kind of 
introduce that idea to people and see how people respond. We're doing an unusual panel discussion in a format that's very different than anything I've done before. On Sunday morning, there's going to be a discussion about all of this, but it's all going to be taking place via Twitter. That's uh, an unusual, I've never had that kind of an experience before. You know, we've done panel discussions, but they've all taken place in the theater in front of an audience. This will be an, an unusual approach. Um, we'll see how it goes. You know, it's, it's an experiment. It's trying something new, and that seems to be in the spirit of an underground film festival to be open to experimenting in the, the structure of the actual festival itself as well as being experimental with the films. Yeah, exactly. It fits with like the whole the whole mission of the festival. We just really scratched the surface as far as talking about the films. We highlighted a couple of the special things, but there, there's lots more going on and uh, folks can see the schedule and find out more information by going to cuffcuff.org. Brian, I appreciate you taking time out of your day to talk with me. I appreciate you having me. Thank you very much. Brian Wendorf is the artistic director of the Chicago Underground Film Festival. This year's fest starts on Wednesday, July 27th and continues through next Sunday, July 31st. You can find a complete schedule at cuff.org. That's C-U-F-F dot org. You can rely on me, honey You can come by anything you want And a quick reminder, if you listen to the show every week here on WDCB, make sure to check out the Arts Section's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want plus some additional content that goes along with all the features you hear on the program. Also, if you got a question, comment, or a story idea, shoot me an email. You can reach me at gzydek at wdcb.org, or you can find me on Instagram or Twitter under the handle at OnAirGary. And I hope you're having a good Sunday morning. There's a garden, what a garden. Only happy faces bloom there And there's never any room there And you are listening to the Arts Section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm joined now remotely by the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Good morning, Gary. So... Tinder wasn't around when playwright Ken Ludwig's parents met in the early 40s. The beginning of their relationship is the source material for his 2019 play Dear Jack, Dear Louise, which just opened at Northlight Theater. With some help from their respective fathers, Jack, an army doctor, and Louise, an aspiring entertainer, meet and connect by writing letters to each other. Starring Casey Hoxtra and Sarah Price in the title roles, the production is directed by Jessica Fish. Interested to hear what you two thought about this. Sounds like uh, a feel-good play. Carrie, what did you think? You know, I think this is a, you know, it's, it's a fairly straightforward, but I think very tender-hearted show. Um, definitely slated, I think, to appeal in some ways for people with strong nostalgia, uh, you know, for the, the times when uh, America's role was perhaps a little less complicated than it is now. Um, there is something, too, so very, very lovely about the idea of the epistolary romance. You joke about Tinder, but I wonder if our, if our relatives or descendants, if, if such we have, were to look at our histories, would they just be trying to find, you know, digital records of text messages as opposed to, you right, know, pieces right. of paper with everything written down? Uh, in some ways, the story is an opposite to track. I think one thing that should be noted is that Ludwig, although the story is true, the letters themselves no longer existed. He notes in a conversation in the program with artist, uh, Northlight Artistic Director B.J. Jones that his mother had destroyed them for reasons he never understood. But he thinks it was probably, you know, to protect their privacy. Perhaps there were sort of intimate details that she just felt, my children don't need to know everything about us. But he did want to pay tribute to them. Um, you know, yes, uh, Jack is an Army doctor. He's from small-town Pennsylvania. He's uh, on the West Coast working with uh, the, the ever-increasing number of casualties that are coming through from the Pacific Theater of War. And Louise is kind of living a life that I think is a little bit 
familiar from anyone who's ever seen the classic uh, play Stage Door about women living in a boarding house trying to make it on Broadway or wherever they can find work as entertainers. So their lives are very different, but there is something that they spark in each other through these letters. And I think the, the great strength of the show is that we really buy into these these actors as these two characters and see that there is a growing sympathy and a growing understanding of each other, even though they have never met in person. And gosh, they've never even been able to FaceTime. Uh, I, I found it quite touching. Um, not not the deepest thing you'll ever see, but I think in, in, for what it's doing, it, it does it quite well. What were your takes on that, Jonathan? Well, just, I, it's, it's very similar to yours. Jack and Louise, uh, both of them are very warm affable characters who are very easy to like, especially as performed by Casey Hoekstra and Sarah Price, and very skillfully directed by Jessica Fish. Coincidentally, her grandparents had a similar wartime correspondence, mm. their romance before they married, broken up by the war. Um, now, you know, a lot of people who are familiar with Ken Lovewood's work, uh, are, you know, know him for his door-slamming comedies and his work uh, in musical theater. And Dear Jack, Dear Louise isn't in that in that category. But I think playgoers, as we've already signaled, I think they'll find it an attractive piece nonetheless, and certainly a very appealing uh, a very appealing production. It's not as raucous as some of Lovewood's other works, nor should it be, because mm-hmm. he's creating far more real characters in many ways. Jack and Louise are true Americans of their time, they're earnest, they're caring, they connect with the audience, their audiences connect with them. It, you know, there are plenty of laughs in it, and there are chuckles and smiles, right. but Ludwig doesn't need this play to be filled with jokes and one-liners, as some of his other pieces are. And right. also, I think he very wisely makes Jack a far more restrained personality than Louise, which uh, allows him to create contrast in the play and, and dramatic tension, and gives both characters somewhere to go as they right. perform the play, something to grow into. Um, now, one detail we've left out in the setup is that it begins in the spring, March 1942, is their first letter to each other. Remember, this is just three months, four months after the United States has entered the war after Pearl Harbor. So our war effort is just is just gearing up. And as uh, as you said, he's stationed in, in in Oregon on the West Coast, and Louise is in New York City. Their parents are old friends who decide the two of them should meet via letter until they can meet in person. And we see as their correspondent grows, their correspondence grows from friendship to affection. That no one dreams it will be more than three years right. before they actually can meet face to face at the end of the war. And uh, again, to confirm what's already been stated, Ludwig has made up the letters, but he has not invented the circumstances, which were all too true and too common during wartime. Yeah, so I I liked it it too, yes. Yeah, I think one of the things that's really interesting, and I think is is skillfully handled in both the script and in the, the direction and the performances, is the way it moves from these sort of comic anecdotal interludes there's a wonderful section where even though she's never met jack louise goes to pennsylvania to meet his family including <laughs> his many many meddlesome aunts to whom he has written very stern instructions of how they are not to mess this up for him as they apparently have other relationships um and, and you know in sort of the the showbiz anecdotes that louise has and then bringing in you know the increasing horror of the war um yes. it's all woven together it's not like here's the comedy Here's the reality. It's these things are existing side by side, I- intertwined, and I think that that felt very honest to me. I think it's one of the great strengths of the show because I think that that is. I mean, I we have lived during wartime, but not like this kind of wartime. Um, that there is this idea that you know real life goes on. You know, at some point, Louise feels guilty for obsessing over her career. Does it seem trivial compared to what Jack is doing? You know, trying to save lives for these horribly injured soldiers that are coming through to him and sailors. Um, but I feel like they, they are they're learning more about each other through both these very well detailed little moments that Ludwig brings in, and then sort of the larger picture of what's looming there. They're both Jewish. That does get mentioned. It's not foregrounded, but it's definitely there. And I think that's you know an important element to this as well. 
And I think what you said is very true, that in some ways Jack is the steadier character, which is why in a twist that I won't reveal to our, to our listeners, uh, something happens that you're kind of surprised it, that he doesn't. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's a possible, you know, inflection point for their relationship. Obviously, we know things came out okay because they got married and Ken Ludwig was born. Um, but I think it's, it's a tribute to his parents, but it doesn't feel like strictly just a vanity project honoring his parents. It's honoring, I think, a certain kind of of, of toughness and, and yet tenderness that was present in that generation at its best. I know it's, you know, perhaps hokey to talk about greatest generation, but you really do feel that uh, here the same way that you might, you know, watching some things based on, you know, Stephen Ambrose books or whatever else uh, oh. we've, we've encountered over the years about, you know, America at war in the 1940s. Yeah, I had, um, I mean, my, my parents were of that generation and I had uh, to uh, an uncle and a first cousin, my oldest, much older first cousin, who were in the war, mm-hmm. in the service during the war. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's very real. And for older Americans today, and I guess I have to include myself in that category, <laughs> even though I'm still 39, everyone right. knows that. Um, but for older Americans, it's just you know one generation removed. It's not it's not that that far away. And uh, this play probably has just the right touch of nostalgia without ever being sentimental right. about the times. Um, the scenic design, I should add, the costumes, uh, the background music, all are correct in period detail and tone uh, with just enough color to the, the costumes and the props and the set pieces and warmth to the the overall tone of the the scenic design to to uh, to to go with the the nature of the characters, these warm and affable characters. You know, Carrie and Gary. I only have one little fly in the ointment, mm-hmm. and it's really really an odd one. Uh, and it's that Ludwig, as a playwright, makes a very obvious historic error. And Carrie, you will recall that in one of the very first letters they exchanged. In the spring of 1942, mm-hmm. March or April, Louise says he's just seen the new musical Oklahoma by Rodgers and Hammerstein, and it was so good she nearly fainted. You remember that? I do. Yes. Alas, uh, Oklahoma wasn't produced until 1943. Ah. So Ludwig is a year, a full year ahead of where well, things should well, be. You know yeah, what he- it's- it's a really, he didn't really, want to tell really... you that his mother's a time lord. I think that's really what it was. That's the privacy he was pr- protecting, is that Louise yeah. had superpowers yeah. to move into the future. <laughs> no. No, this is, I know this is a little thing, and it's an obscure sure. piece of theater history, but this was a very, very important show in theater history. Right. And I promise you, if this play is widely done, I'm not the only theater critic who's right. going to catch this. <laughs> right. And it's so easy but, for Ludwig but, but to were they, But were they on the nose of timing for Blythe? <laughs> Were they on the nose of the timing with Blythe's Spirit? Because the production of Blythe's Spirit becomes a, a little subplot in Louise's uh, showbiz travails as well. Yes. Uh, now that was the Noel Coward play. Blythe's Spirit was mm-hmm. in the 1940s, and um, uh, I have to look up the dates, but I think right. it was a wartime <laughs> show. Yeah. So that, they, well, they were both yeah. wartime shows. It was right. just you know, a year too early with Oklahoma. Right. Yes. And there's some lovely period music, you know, in the uh, in the recordings that we hear, too. So you really do get that feel for it. But again, it's not all, you know, uh, rose-colored glasses nostalgia. Um, I think, you know, I was there with, a, with an older audience, I think, and they definitely seem to be responding, you know, to that. Because I think, it, well, as you said, everyone's, we're all older now, and this is probably stories that are more like, Parents, you know, of older of the senior citizens rather than their own story, um, but it is such an you know such an important uh, time in American history and such a you know a, a time that I think, as you said, Jonathan, I think that's the beautiful part of the script too, and kind of the heartrending part is nobody imagines this war would go on as long as it did, and with with as much damage to American lives, and not to mention, of course, the horrible damage that was in, in Europe and in the, in the Pacific. You know, the audience at Northlight Theater is is does have an older skew, uh, even more so, I think, than than um, many other of the subscription houses in Chicago. And I'm wondering whether this will change when Northlight finally moves into the new home 
Um, I, think, I believe they've broken ground and started construction yeah. on a new theater. They're building from the ground up in downtown Evanston on Davis Street. And they will be, you know, it'll be much more accessible to people coming by CTA. There's a stop right there to mm-hmm. the Northwestern community, which is diverse and, and, and uh, wide-ranging in terms of age. And I wonder if it will bring in a new, fresh, and perhaps slightly younger-skewed I- audience. Right. I hope yeah. so. For the, uh, for the so longevity well. of the theater, I hope so. Right. Yeah. And I know that this is something that B.J. Jones, the artistic director, has wanted to do for quite some time. This is no slam on the North Shore Center. It's been a very, you know, very acceptable uh, uh, place for them. And I've seen one or two shows now from Music Theater Works, which used to be a con auditorium that's moved out there, and that seems to be a good space for them. But I do think with Evanston, as you mentioned, Jonathan, there, it's accessible to public transit, there are, you know, not that there aren't restaurants and things around North Shore Center, but there's a lot of good foot traffic, you know, um, down just downtown Evanston opportunities that I think might make it a more attractive destination, um, or even a sort of a last minute, hey, why don't we go get a ticket to, as opposed yeah. to, you know, having to make the the plan to get out to North Light. That sounds like two recommendations. Dear Jack, Dear Louise runs through August 7th at North Light Theater in Skokie. For more information, go to northlight.org. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Oh, you're welcome, well, Gary. You're welcome, and and and, and Gary and Carrie, I just I just want to ask you, please, don't sit under the apple tree with anyone else <laughs> but me. <laughs> I'm Gary Zydek, and it's movie review time on the art section. The French rom-com My Donkey, My Lover, and I evokes a carefree, warm feeling that made it hard for me to stop smiling. When I say rom-com, it's more calm than rom, though there's definitely a sense of romanticism. It just doesn't come from where you might expect. French actor Laurie Calamy is absolutely phenomenal as Antoinette, a naive schoolteacher with good intentions but questionable decision-making skills. She's having an affair with the married Vladimir, the dad of one of her grade school students. Early on, we learn of Antoinette and Vladimir's plans for a romantic getaway together, but Vlad cancels the trip because his wife is making him go on a week-long hiking excursion in France's Souvin National Park. Devastated, Antoinette rushes out the door, not to mourn their ruined holiday, but to book a trip to Savan herself, with a half-baked plan to, I guess, casually run into Vladimir. What our heroine doesn't know is that Vladimir and his family plan on hiking something called the Stevenson Trail, which is based on the real-life exploits of acclaimed author Robert Louis Stevenson. He wrote Treasure Island and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He also allegedly hiked the Savan with a donkey to get over the heartbreak of losing what he believed was his true love. So you can see the parallels between Stevenson and Antoinette. Of course, poor Antoinette is woefully unprepared for the rigors of this kind of hike. She rents a donkey named Patrick for the trip and struggles in getting him to do what she wants. Some physical comedy ensues. But as the film goes on, Patrick becomes more than a comedic foil. He turns out to be just what Antoinette needs. A trustworthy friend and a good judge of character... Patrick has a knack for braying when a guy with questionable intentions is around, serving as a quasi-protector for Antoinette. Two things that elevate My Donkey, My Lover, and I above standard rom-com fare. One, the cinematography is gorgeous, shot on location in south-central France. The area's natural beauty, which includes lush green hills, giant mountains, and stunning forestry, really shine. And two... Calamy's performance is pitch perfect. Her character comes across a bit naive, but she isn't dumb by any stretch. She has a good head on her shoulders, it's just that her heart gets in the way sometimes. Probably all the time. But is that a bad thing? Calamy won a César Award for her performance as Antoinette. The award is France's equivalent to an Oscar, so high praise from her home country. The film isn't super deep, but it'll definitely put a smile on your face. I give my donkey, my lover, and I three out of four stars. It's currently playing at two Chicago-area theaters, AMC River East in Chicago and AMC Village Crossing in Skokie. You're tuned into the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. 
accordionists from around the world descended upon West Suburban DuPage County this past week. The Accordionists and Teachers Guild International held its annual festival at Wheaton College and the Lyle Hyatt. The organization, which is celebrating its 80th anniversary, is dedicated to fostering an appreciation of the accordion. We have international members. We have members from at least uh, seven or eight countries, but we're really a United States organization. This is Marianne Cavone, the president of the Accordionists and Teachers Guild, a.k.a. the ATG. It was founded by Anthony Gallerini in 1940 because we're celebrating our 80th anniversary. We're a little delayed in celebrating that because we had COVID. So we got uh, two years postponed. We are promoting excellence in accordion playing and accordion teaching. That's what we're about. It's um, high level. Well, I mean, it's all levels, really. So people come here to learn. We have workshops Mm -hmm. and to enjoy artists from all over the world. I stopped by the festival's kickoff event in Lyle, an event called the Accordion Petting Zoo was taking place. The program was designed to attract people, especially kids, interested in trying out an accordion for the first time. The petting zoo was exactly for that purpose, so that people can come and try it out of all ages. I have students from age six to age 80. They're beginners, some are a little more advanced, some are retired people, some folks are still working in their 30s, and um, we just have a lot of fun. So that was the idea. There seems to be a resurgence in interest in the accordion. That's happening right now. I started Chicagoland Accordion Academy, a little more that, right toward the beginning of COVID. So we really started everything online I was amazed at how many people have called me and have an interest and people from all walks of life, you know, retired CEOs, acting physicians, just everyone seems to have a little more interest in the accordion and wanting to play. Any thought as to what's driving this renewed interest? I don't know. I know that the reason it, the interest waned many, many years ago had to do with rock and roll. Mm-hmm. There was a time when everybody played the accordion. Everybody had an accordion. In fact, I started on the accordion because my uncle had an accordion in his attic and my parents couldn't afford a piano. Mm -hmm. So he brought it over and said, try this, because everybody had an accordion. But I think rock and roll uh, caused the accordion interest to diminish. Mm -hmm. Now there seems to be a renewed interest because it's different. I think people want to do something different. So what about these perceptions that the accordion isn't cool? That's honestly passed. A lot of people who are now 50, 60 years old grew up when accordion was like briefly uncool, mm-hmm. when it didn't get on the rock and roll cart, but now people use accordion in such creative ways. This is Michael Bridge, a world-renowned accordionist who specializes in classical music. I caught up with him during a break in between festival events. He vigorously defended the accordion against any notion that the instrument can't be fun. Just down the hall from where we are now, there's this accordion petting zoo going on. I know you looked in and there's like dozens of little kids in there trying little mini accordions like the one I had when I grew up. They're just having a ball uh, trying it out. Kids don't know if it's cool or not. I didn't know. That's why I I didn't have any of those preconceptions. And the truth is, accordion is literally one of the most versatile instruments in the whole world. I'd say second only to voice, piano, and percussion. But it is all over the world. You think of Italian folk song, German folk songs, French, but it goes much further. Accordion is a huge thing in China. There's 100,000 conservatory-level students in China on accordion right now. It's a huge cultural thing in Eastern Europe, the Balkans, in New Zealand, in Australia, uh, Brazil. There's a huge accordion community. So it's a way to sort of know music and people from around the world, and I think young people these days really dig that. Mm -hmm. Like, it's cool to be retro now, And it's also cool to be international and to be very diverse in one's tastes and look for music that is not from one's own culture. Bridge, who performs all over the world as a soloist with orchestras and with his duo group Bridge and Wolak, has been playing since he was five. 
But his introduction to the instrument is really the result of happenstance. I read that your mom bought your first accordion at a, an estate sale. Exactly. When I was about five, my mom bought an accordion for me at a garage sale. It cost literally $5. My dad still says that's the most expensive $5 that my parents have ever spent. <laughs> and that's where it came from. It was a tiny little accordion, 12 buttons on the left hand, two octaves of a piano keyboard on the right hand, and I still have it. Oh yeah. I'm going to keep that. And that's where it all started, playing folk music, songs by ear. I didn't even have a formal teacher for a couple of years. It was just the, the love of finding that instrument and figuring out what, what do you do with this thing that changes shape on you that you can barely hang on to. It's, right. it's quite a puzzle for a five-year-old because it was as big as me. So is it something where you were saying that you kind of like were playing by ear, but did you have like a natural aptitude? Did you just figure it out quickly or was it something that just gradually over the years you became more and more interested with? I think I loved it from the beginning. So I was really into playing folk songs, things that I heard on the radio. I'd try to transcribe them and do them on accordion. And then when I was about seven, I went to a teacher with whom I am now on the board of this organization, okay. the Accordionists and Teachers Guild, ATG. She was my teacher for about 10, 11 years in Calgary, where I grew up. Then when I was 18, I made the transition to Toronto. And um, I live there now, I, and that's where I've been a student at the University of Toronto, and I've done undergraduate masters, and now I've just uh, finished my doctorate in accordion oh. performance. Congrats. Thank you. If you're just tuning in, this is the art section. My name's Gary Zydek, and it's all accordion all the time. Just kidding. I'm talking with acclaimed accordionist Michael Bridge about the sometimes misunderstood instrument. And if you're like me, you might be curious about how an accordion actually works, because while I'm familiar with the sound of an accordion, I'm not sure how the instrument creates it. So it all starts with the bellows, the part that opens and closes. That generates air pressure. Either you're sucking air into the bellows or you're pushing it out. Mm -hmm. And then with your fingers on both hands, think of it as you're selecting which valve to open by pushing keys or buttons, and you open a valve, and then when you, by pushing the key, and then there's a little vibrating metal reed that's just at that opening that you've just uh, opened. And as the air goes over the reed, it'll create a sound. So there is, in a full-size accordion, about 800 reeds that all have to be tuned as well. And those reeds uh, get selected when you push each key or, or note, and then they can sound together. Sometimes you'll couple reeds together. So you'll push one key with your finger, but you might be activating up to four reeds at the same time uh, because it opens four different valves. So it's a, it's a really mechanical instrument. There's more parts to make an accordion than a grand piano, mm. which is a crazy statistic. Yeah. <laughs> There's wow. hundreds and thou thousands of, of components that go into it. It takes about nine months to make a professional model. The accordion truly is Bridges' passion, which is why he's dedicated so much of his time to not only playing it well, but understanding exactly how the instrument works. I've always been interested in writing about how do you play accordion and sort of dissecting it. My dad is a scientist, a geneticist. So all my life we've sort of had dinner conversations uh, about uh, how do genes work? How, how does this work? How does that work? Mm -hmm. Breaking it apart and sort of, so I, I sort of think in that way. My doctoral thesis is written about micro movements that one makes with the body in order to get a slightly different sound with the accordion. But that really matters because if you're, say, accompanying a vocalist, you don't want to be too loud, but you have to support them just the right amount. Mm -hmm. If you play in front of an orchestra, different problem. You've got to be loud and really, really project to the back corners of the hall. And so to know what exactly do you do with the position of your left elbow in order to get a different sound because you're pulling the bellows a different way. Like, I'm interested in that minutiae, and that's what I've written about. 
um, and that's my personal passion. Sharing that with other teachers, compiling uh, what my own professor at the University of Toronto and various other professors and performers in Europe that I've interviewed, seeing um, how do they play. Uh, one guy, he's done like uh, 300 concerto performances now in front of orchestras, which is a huge number for accordionists. He's Geier Drugsfeld, the professor in Copenhagen at the Royal Danish Academy. And he was telling me this beautiful analogy of when I play this concerto, um, I have to think of putting the tones up into the corners of the room and sending it out there. And if I think that I'm sending it out there, then I think the audience, they feel that too. And he talks about the communication, and which we've all missed these past years, the in-person communication in a concert hall of being able to use an instrument that breathes with an external lung, the accordion, to send emotion out to people and how satisfying that, that can be and how much it connects with people. Bridge is also very involved with the ATG and is obviously a big proponent of its efforts to increase awareness of accordions. He was among the headlining performers at this year's festival. Conferences like this can sometimes be closed, sort of, sort of closed to the public where only the attendees really interact and they go to the workshops and do the professional development and that's great. But the reason why I'm such a fan of the ATG is that they've really put the emphasis on this accordion petting zoo where kids can come and we have like 20 little accordions just sitting there and they can pick it up and try it on. Um, then these concerts that are coupled with Wheaton College and it's um, on the Wheaton College Artist Series. We have, uh, we have a whole orchestra coming, the Racine Symphony Orchestra on Saturday night um, to play a concerto. So we have a, an 80-person accordion orchestra, and then we ha also have a nearly 50-person symphony orchestra on the same concert. Mm -hmm. Like, that's, that's a huge show. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the ATG really pushes it out and, um, and really gets the accordion into the community, and that's why um, I was pleased to join the board a couple of years back during the pandemic and, and why I, um, I spend a lot of time on this organization because they really do great work. When he's not playing or studying the accordion, Bridge devotes his time to a nonprofit organization that he started to help young people interested in a career in the arts. It's called the Music Mentorship Program, the Bridge and Wolak Music Mentorship Program. We started it during the pandemic because all our concerts got postponed. And we're like, what are we going to do with all of our time? And what we had always wanted to do was work with high school aged students to help them get into music. Of course, I can help people who are interested in accordion, but it can be any instrument. So we have uh, an online program on Zoom where we show interviews that we've done with professionals like anybody in the music industry from the techs, lighting techs, sound techs, arts administrators. Don't know if we have a radio person. Well, maybe we call you. <laughs> yeah. And then we have a fashion designer, we have scientists who work with music, like music psychologists. And we try to show our students that there are so many ways to be in the arts. Mm -hmm. If you're interested in the arts, it's not just performer and teacher, mm -hmm. there's a zillion ways. And everyone who's in the arts, you know, ask anybody, they'll tell you they have a weird uh, career path that it mm -hmm. sort of took them by surprise how they landed their first job. I'm, guessing it's the same for you. I certainly never saw my own thing coming and that's the thing I love about the arts, but it requires a little bit of entrepreneurship. So any high school kids that are interested, we have this, this program, we run it a few times a year. It's six weeks online on Zoom and we just try to help answer questions really honestly, like how much money do you make as a musician? That's my big passion now, in addition to performing and touring and it's I'm happy it's been busy. Um, I just spent a month at the Metropolitan Opera mm -hmm. in New York. I got to be there as cover accordionist for an opera, Hamlet. Uh, so I'm glad that things are back. I know uh, the pandemic's not totally over, but um, at least things are happening again. And with caution, we can all be together. This year's ATG Accordion Festival wrapped up yesterday, but don't despair. It's coming back to the Chicago area next year. It's scheduled to take place in DuPage County again, and you can learn everything you've ever wanted to know about accordions, but we're afraid to ask. 
one great quote Stravinsky once said, never trust an instrument that changes shape, <laughs> which I just think is funny. <laughs> but do trust it. Uh, it's, it. It can be a lot of fun. That's accordionist Michael Bridge. You can check out his website at michaelbridge.ca and stay on top of all things ATG at atgaccordions.com. Mom's got a squeeze box, she wears on her chest. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along, along with all the features you hear on the program. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. And until then, I hope you have a great week. Stay cool. Thanks for listening. In and out, in and out.